a choice right now, right now, between fear and love. It's just a run. Out of the dark night of ignorance and into the shining light of truth. Expounding reality. A population of citizens capable of critical thinking. We don't see things as they are, we see them as we are. There's a, a level of reality where everything dissolves into an ocean of energy. We empower our experience by insisting on our authenticity. That's very profound. Very Expanding reality. Welcome to Expanding Reality. I am your host, Brandon Thomas. On this episode, we have the honor of sitting down with Mark Ollie. Now, his book, Crystal Skulls and Human Heads, The Mystical History of Glass and the Extinction of the World, will be dropping March 1st. So all the ways to find him linked in the show notes, of course, guys. Uh, phenomenal phenomenal conversation we cover uh human origins he destroys evolution and it's amazing uh creation theories uh this advanced race that could have been here also time travel i'm not going to ruin it but it's a phenomenal phenomenal thing and of course crystal skulls we cover that and it's fascinating guys so you're just going to love this episode you're going to love mark uh so all of the ways to find him like i've already said will be located down in the show notes uh if you would like to check out our affiliate links food forest abundance is linked down there as well as libsyn if you want to start your own podcast and then if you're going to buy anything on amazon hop it through our link it helps the show also if you would like to expand your experience with us here on the program you can do so at expandingrealitypodcast.com that is also going to be linked down in the show notes a lot of changes going on at the website guys make sure that y'all just at least pop by there and say hi and take a look um lives are being republished there we're doing some live stuff going on there so a lot of stuff is changing so dial in uh, some big things are happening but for now let's get to this amazing conversation absolutely incredible again i just cannot tell you how much fun and amazing this was. So I'm just going to shut up and let's get to it. So without any further ado, let's welcome Mark Ollie. Yeah, go on, on your marks, get set. Everybody out there listening, this is an awesome episode already. Uh, Mark Ollie and I are hanging out. You wrote an incredible book, of course, Crystal Skulls and Human Heads. I cannot wait to get into this with you. So um, let's just go for it, man. So uh, tell my audience just a little bit about yourself, sir, if you don't mind. Uh, okay, um, Mark Olley, I'm a UK archaeologist and uh, television history presenter. I've done things for ITV and Sky. I've uh, been doing it for quite a long time. As we were chatting about it earlier, I'm also a musician. Um, I've got, I'm in two bands at the moment. Um, we tour regularly. Um, I was professional for about 21 years. I do that more in the background now um, as I'm getting older. You know, it's that's the only thing with archaeologists. You see, the, the older you get, the more interesting you become because we're into these old things, you see. So, uh, yeah, um, the moment I'm writing books, as you know, uh, there are, I'm trying to think about this, I think this is the fourth one actually now that's out. There's uh, Disappearing Ninth Legion, which is about the Roman Legion that walked out of York, never to be seen again. Um, the Life and Times of the Real Robin Hood which the um, chairman of the Worldwide Society said is the best Robin Hood book ever written. But if you go looking for that, it's R-O-B-Y-N-H-O-O-D-E. So if you go on a search engine, try and spell that one correctly. Um, Revealing the Green Man, 
which is quite a good bestseller. It's made the bestsellers a few times on Amazon. And now, and now, Crystal Skulls and Human Heads, The Mystical History of Glass and the Extinction of the World. <laughs> so here we are. Here we are. It, it is so cool. I can't wait. Uh, th- your work is fascinating. And so I'll definitely link Robin Hood in the bottom and all the ways to find you, of course, guys. So all the ways to find him, uh, check the show notes. You guys know how this works. And of course, he's with Flying Disc Press. And so yes, Flying uh, Disc, yeah. Y- your family already, man. <laughs> Uh, um, I mean, yeah, anything on Amazon, go on Amazon, uh, type my name in. Um, and I would say to anybody, if they want to know more about the film and television, the music side of it and all the rest of it, then by all means, Google search because stuff will come up. I'm on YouTube. I've done past interviews. And uh, in fact, there's even a DVD out there somewhere, Europe's Roswell, um, which was released in America. It's also on um, Amazon Prime and it's an uh, investigation into a crash UFO. So I think a lot of the listeners would find that fascinating. Um, obviously, as an archaeologist historian, I'm very much hands on, you know, I want to, you know, find things. So the last sort of 15, 20 minutes of that is literally wreckage. So Forget all the stuff that you never see. It has actually got an end to it. You know, it's got a beginning, a middle and an end. You get to see the bits that we recovered. So uh, that's an interesting one. Europe's Roswell, it's called. Uh, It's been out around a while. Yeah. Go have a look. Definitely. So all the ways, of course, guys, you're a fascinating guy. You check all the boxes for a phenomenal show here. And so I'm very, very excited about this. So uh, I'll let you down. <laughs> uh, you definitely yeah. won't, man. Are already the vibes here, man. Uh, so let's talk about uh, the evidence for human origins. As an archaeologist, um, I began to notice over certainly over the last 20 years, um, archaeoscience has been developing in leaps and bounds now it's not you know dragging a butty box across the field looking for changes in dirt color it's gone a long way since then there's a lot more going on now um since the days of programs like time team and what have you that popularized it in the 80s and 90s we're we're now at a stage where we can examine remains in ways that previously we couldn't do so uh, what I did when I was writing the book, um, as an archaeologist, you've got to have a peg to hang your hat on. You can't just go, whoa, let's look at everything. It just doesn't work like that, as, as people will gather. So I thought, what can I use that is a very familiar and yet at the same time historical, long-lasting archaeological object? And that's where the head side of it comes from uh, as long as there's been human beings they've had heads at least as far as i'm aware and most of the archaeological remains that come up people tend to focus on the head because of course you can reconstruct it you can do facial reconstruction you can get a huge amount of information just from that one object so it, it made sense you know don't forget the toe bone and the ankle bone the leg bone and all this kind of thing there's loads of those knocking around but at the end of the day the sort of the peg to hang the hat on had to be had to be the head had to be the face The other thing as well is that as as human beings, when we look at these faces and we look at these skulls, you are face to face with your ancestors, the people from the past. They're actually there and they're there in front of you, which is about as close short of a time machine, which I might come to at the very end. Short of us having a time machine, it's the closest we're ever going to get to coming face to face with with the people in the past. Um, So I took that, started looking at that and then realized that there is actually a colossal amount of science now that has come out uh when you get to the end of sort of uh, the teens if you like the 20 teens uh that science uh certainly up to 2019 a lot of it got lost it disappeared under the pandemic um so as soon as you flipped into the next decade uh 2020 2021 2022 
nobody seems to know what's going on. Nothing's really got out there. Um, uh, you know, things have ground to a standstill in a way in terms of communication. So I just thought, well, yeah, that's got to be a book. There has to be a book there that kickstarts the next step. So the next step now is to take all of that information, all of that data and actually make something out of it. And essentially, that's what the book does. It literally goes through step by step, uh, old heads, you know, more recent heads, depictions of heads, ideas about heads, what heads are, how heads work. And then right at the very end, it pushes it forward into where that might take us. Um, surprisingly, when you read the book, don't take anything for granted because it's not a journey that has an expected outcome. You know, it's uh, it takes you up all kinds of twists and turns. Um, the most startling thing for me, the most startling side discovery, if you like, was, was the crystal side of it. I started off assuming that a crystal skull is a lump of rock and that's it. You know, they're very nice, very pretty. Stick them on your mantelpiece. They look great. You know, there's the Mitchell Hedges skull and one or two of the other ones. Um, and I sort of didn't really know a great deal about what that was made of, what that was capable of, what crystals could do. So for me, that was that was a big part of the adventure. Um, and it really opened things up. Um, and some of the crossovers, some of the way the science feeds across, uh, really, really surprised me. Um, but certainly at the beginning of the book, the main focus at the start is on DNA, uh, which I don't think people have. Um, how can I put it? There's a kind of an unwritten rule. There's an unwritten rule, if you like, among science, archaeology, history, all the rest of it, that you don't annihilate somebody else's career by putting something out there, you know, that wipes them out before they reach retirement age. Consequently, this has held things up tremendously because people are living longer. So you might have someone who's 70 years old. So something discovered 70 years ago that completely destroys their theory or completely upsets their paradigm, you're not supposed to make a big deal of that because you're going to kill them off they're going to wipe them out you know their work's gone so really the first part of the book is me taking hold of charles darwin who thankfully is dead and all the stuff that was built on top of darwin and it became darwinism and then just going well hang on a minute what about dna here's dna you know uh, what's dna telling us uh, that whole thing if you like that came post-Darwin has gone. It's, it's, it's basically, it's in the trash can now because of what we know about how life on Earth has developed, how species function, um, how things work. And it, it, uh, it just hasn't, you know, somebody all those years ago planted a seed thinking they were going to get an oak tree and they didn't get an oak tree. You know, they got a Californian redwood. They got something completely different. The whole thing that's grown out of the science and grown out of those ideas and theories has, has not gone where, I don't, I don't think it's gone where they expected it to go. So the opening part of the book, really, I spend a lot of time trying to sort of move people away from what they're used to, uh, you know, the popular idea that t-shirt you know with a little tiny like fish going up into a monkey and then the monkey kind of goes up into you know some guy that looks a bit like a gorilla who eventually goes up to some guys obviously pumping weights you know at the end of it that has gone that just just does not exist it's complete science fiction um which having said that you know half the world are going to go yay somebody's saying that at last and the other half the world's going to get a double barrel shotgun and want to you know <laughs> get rid of me it's <laughs> it's not a great way of being popular even though it's right so uh, that's kind of where the book's going and that's where it starts it kind of starts with that whole looking at ancient people um and the dna information and the the information about people that we've got that's coming out now now this is something that's so interesting about the scientific community and yeah you hear about this you hear about guys who have tenure or something like that where there's 
papers that people want to publish, but they're up and coming or whatever. They're uh, subordinate in some respects, and they won't publish those findings, or they they hold on to it or just don't release it at all or just destroy the information or alter it in a way that doesn't perturb the original facts, which would negate the entire thing. So there is an interesting bit of politics that's involved in science, which makes people yeah. like me very leery of scientists, yeah. you know, because anyone can be bought at this point is what I think that a lot of us have figured out. Yeah, that's that's come out of the pandemic. Um, you know, the science goes where, uh, well, everybody does something for a living at the end of the day. And that's that's essentially where science has gone. It's gone now to a, a stage where it is just as much an industry, you know, as the guys who used to dig for coal or the bloke who drives the bus or, you know, put it in context. Yes, they have a lot of toys and skill, intelligence, qualifications. You know, you can't belittle them in that sense. But if you looked at it, completely independently um, from a sort of social point of view, um, you know, the guy that's cleaning up the road and, you know, gets rid of the trash and gets rid of the rats and all the, the, the vermin and what have you, is just as important in many ways to a, a functioning society as the guy who's sat in his laboratory, you know, discovering that, you know, silicon dioxide mixed with, you know, nitric acid does this or whatever. You know, it's it's all a part of uh, an overall whole. It's, it's more like the beehive mentality you know it's it's that we all support each other sort of thing once you get to that appreciation it opens up all the possibilities that whatever anybody knows ought to come out you know people should share what they know um you know no matter who they are no matter how diverse their knowledge is that is the strength in the human race um the pandemic clearly showed us that you know if, if, if we all gather together and we all support each other with different skills we're going to get through it whatever it happens to be. Um, and that's in the book as well. There's a very strong, very, very strong backbone, if you like, running through the book that basically says no matter how diverse the book is, at the end of the day, it's that diversity that's going to get us through, not the idea that we can genetically modify society to suddenly all be the same, because that is never going to work. You know, the universe, the galaxy, the planets, our planet, nature everything is not in any way shape or form uniform so it's not so much a case of mankind you know going on mankind's insecurities to try and narrow everything down and pigeonhole and box it what we need to do as a race is appreciate diversity and get used to being uncomfortable you know and getting used to things opening up and and that's one of the big emphasis behind the the, the book itself is to say you know for goodness sake you know this book's coming from an archaeologist it shouldn't be coming from me it should be coming from some guy who's like on a par with Stephen Hawking you know what I mean it should that's where it should be coming from uh, but at the end of the day, it's not. It's coming from me because I'm diverse. That's what I am. I'm, I'm a, you know, all inclusive. Uh, and that's how I like to be, which is something archaeology does teach you. I mean, going, going back to that again, you know, once you're digging on a dig site, which is the remains of another human race from, from days gone by, everything, everything confronts you. You have to face whatever, you know, comes up on that dig site. So you've got to be very much um, multidisciplinary. And the science as well now makes it possible to be multidisciplinary. Uh, you know, I don't just jump in a hole now with a with a trowel and, and scrape in the sand till I pull up a piece of pottery. You know what I mean? I've got to know that all the things I'm doing, I've got, I've got to accommodate where that's going to go after me because it'll all go off to science. You know, it'll go off for analysis, carbon dating, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but the book's very honest about that as well. I've, I've tried it as, as much as I can be, to be honest. Um, I'm, I'm a bit, I'm, I'm kind of renowned for saying the things that other people in my profession don't say. You know, I'm very shoot, it's a duck. Uh, you'll have found that from the book, I would imagine. 
um, especially to do with dating and things like that. You know, uh, uh, the whole profession, the whole history and DNA and archaeology and everything, the whole profession likes to be able to say, oh, we know exactly how old that is. You know, it was 10,542 BC in the June. You know, it's kind of that's what they like to be able to say. It, it just... 99.999% of the time, it's just not like that, you know, um, and the science, I mean, I say it in the book every 10 years or so, the science modifies because we're just basically getting better at it. Uh, but as, as I said, the point I suppose I'm making is that uh, back to where we were, that, that they need to throw out the old and bring in the new so that we're developing and we're moving forward at a reasonable speed. You know, that's we, we need to pick up the pace a bit now in the 21st century. Uh, the Victorian excuses don't wash anymore. We need to sort of get on with it, you know. So, yeah, yeah, there you go. <laughs> Once you get me going, you can't stop me. <laughs> well, I, I love it and it's perfect. And your perception is, is why I want to have you on the show. Your approach to this professionally is what I enjoy the most because you at least have hubris and you at least know how the system works. And instead of, let's say, for instance, someone like a Stephen Hawking, uh, let's say, uh, allegedly you know, would have a pretty difficult time accepting new information that would have shattered, air quotes, his career, uh, rather than like you being open mind. I bet if somebody came up to you and said, hey, we found something that actually negates your entire work, you'd be proud, you'd stand by him, you'd say, you know what, I discovered this. But because you discovered that was the reason they actually found the actual truth to it, you know what I mean? So you're still credited as part of this. And there's no ego in that, you know, there shouldn't be, especially in scientific discovery, because yeah. everything is based on this. So um, I, I am curious about how or what you found rather that discounted uh, Darwin's theory of uh, the origin of species with the implementation of when you started viewing it in conjunction with DNA. Well, DNA is an it's it's an interesting um, structure in itself. It's an interesting part of of the plan that we're all a part of, um, in the sense that it it kind of it probably is the only thing that is really predictable. You can say right that is what DNA is, how it functions, what it's made of. And we've moved on so fast since DNA was first, you know, conceived, analyzed, discovered. We've moved on so quickly that we're now at the stage where we're, we're almost, how can I put it? Do you, do you remember when we used to have cassette recorders? We used to record stuff on tape. And then all of a sudden they went, oh, wow, that's fantastic. Let's take it further. So then we finished up on CDs and then CDs went out. Now it's all, you know, digital, this, that, and the other. DNA's pretty much moved at the same speed, almost comparative to, to that kind of technological development. So we're now at the stage where we can look at DNA and we can go, well, do you know what? We'll change that bit of DNA in this, you know, uh, string of barley because we can get rid of the insects that are attacking it. Now, some people don't see that as being particularly good because you can pinch DNA from elsewhere. You know, you could have nick a piece of, you know, something out of a pig's DNA and combine that with, you know, a, a certain breed of apple to produce an apple, that, you know, is resistant to the kind of things that you find out in, in in different environments, etc. So the mix and match kind of thing with DNA, we're at that stage where we kind of understand it. The concern there is that we're sort of playing with it. You know, we're sort of messing with it. What's come out very, very quickly, very early on, is uh, certainly in nature, once you know what that DNA is, it doesn't suddenly one day become something else. So that T-shirt with the, you know, fish turning into a monkey, turning into a person, turning into us, does not work. We're actually only one chromosome away from a pig. So if Darwin knew that, Darwin would have gone, well, maybe we evolved from a pig. And people would have gone, yeah, 
that's possible. It's vaguely possible. But we're nothing like the monkeys, nothing like the gorillas, nothing like the chimpanzees at all. And I think I, I kind of sort of mention it in the book that there were other um, racial issues, shall we say, in the Victorian era um, that people were leaning towards and they took hold of that and they used that as justification for a lot of the things they did back then, which um, is just out of order. You know, in the 21st century, we, we, we can't support that. It's insupportable. But in nature, if something mutates, if the DNA does mutate, most of the time that mutation doesn't survive. If we mutate it, so we create a GM crop or whatever and we shove it out in the real world, that doesn't survive either. So it's beginning to look like, and I'm jumping ahead of the science now, but it's beginning to look like you can't improve on nature. It's like the DNA fits perfectly wherever you find that DNA, which then means that when you start looking at different species and you look at the theory of evolution, et cetera, et cetera, it, it just doesn't work. One thing does not turn into something else. You know, you don't have a cat turning into a bird that turns into a dog that turns into whatever. You know, we, we didn't develop from bacteria. We didn't develop from worms and things like that. But now we're on to dangerous ground because all the beautiful confidence that humanity had that that's how everything was. And you look back down the, you know, the years of time and you go all the way back to the beginning and, you know, it's a fabulous pattern. It's a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful piece of science fiction that makes us all feel really comfortable. But it isn't true. It's not true. What the DNA and early species and early peoples are showing us is that everything seems to have been designed to fit wherever it is everything is right it's perfect and at some point something went wrong now whatever it is that that, that went wrong was big enough to affect the entire planet so you know again only in recent times very recent times have they discovered that there's a sucking great meteorite crater under antarctica in fact, it's down to the United States, actually. I think it was the, the US Geological Survey did the ice sheets in Antarctica. And when all the data finally came back and it was analysed, there's this sucking great big crater. There's another one, which is the entire of the Gulf of Mexico. That whole gulf, the whole of the Gulf of Mexico is a huge crater. Now, I've been down there. I've been to the Yucatan Peninsula. I had a look around. No doubt about it. Something came down and flattened it. Now, those kind of impacts, which, again, make us feel really uncomfortable, because, you know, we, one day you might wake up and go, oh, look, there's one. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's This is kind of on that level, you know what I mean? Oh, dear, well, how long have we got before that yeah. one hits? You know, you're into disaster movie territory. Well, there's plenty of evidence to say that this happened. You know, I mean, something smacked into Tunguska in Russia in the 1920s, you know, and you kind of look at all these things and you think, okay, it's making us feel a bit uneasy, but it's that uncertainty. We have to embrace that uncertainty. Something definitely happened. It upset the apple cart and then... Give Darwin his due, what he actually did right about modification and survival of the fittest, in a sense, it's adaptation. So he knew, he instinctively knew that something had gone wrong and that all the species, that's everything, you know, from fish to farmers, everybody had had to change. Everything had to change to accommodate those cataclysmic events. Um the question then that I was left with is, well, I wonder what it was like when it was perfect. Mm -hmm. Where did we start? You know, where, where did this all begin? Um, which was a nice point, really, again, getting back to human heads. It was a nice point to come back to the human beings that may have been back then and then further back and then further back again and so on and so on and so on. Um, 
And it does look like we've gone around in cycles. You know, it looks like there's been you know, perfect and then nearly perfect and then not so perfect. And then, well, okay, that's acceptable. And then well, it's getting a bit less acceptable now. And then things are devolving and we know that that's a mechanism that exists in nature. So that, that comes as no surprise. You know, things get older, things deteriorate, things decay, et cetera. And that happens on a huge scale. Um, I'm sure if there's any astronomers listening out there, they watch planets and galaxies decay. Everything eventually goes through the same process. So it's, um, I think in ancient times, we had an enormous, enormous respect and appreciation for the mechanics, the mechanisms that were involved in nature and in the planet and in the universe. And what's happened somehow in the last couple of hundred years, perhaps since the Industrial Revolution, we suddenly think now that we're superheroes and we're powerful enough to be able to override all these things, you know, and... Yeah, pride before a fall, you know, that's that's my concern. You know, I know as an archaeologist, entire civilizations have vanished. You know, uh, Aztecs disappeared, the Egyptians disappeared, the Roman Empire collapsed, you know, maybe all for different reasons, but, you know, in that sense, nothing lasts forever. So I suppose it's it's... There's a message in the book that's kind of saying to humanity, don't get too cocky, you know, don't don't get too comfortable. Don't park your feet by the fire just yet, because, you know, it might not be that comfortable, the ride in the future, you know. Hence the, uh, the zip line, the end of the world, because the mystical history of glass is the unveiling of, of perhaps the structure of things. Uh, then the end of the world is the, you've just got to accept it, you know. But the end is never the end. I mean, there's, you know, there's always stuff left. There's always more to go on and on and on and on it seems to rebirth itself each time maybe not as good as the time before but again it just carries on uh beginning loads and loads and loads of ends and then the end i don't know when the the end is going to come you know but hopefully not too soon (laughs) hopefully not i'm having a good time you know this is a cool place i'm enjoying myself (laughs) yeah i I like being here (laughs) yeah right (laughs) Well, I, I am curious then because Darwin's work sought to identify the origin of species, specifically mankind, right? And so yes, if we yes. didn't come from monkeys and what Darwin was showing us was just an adaptation based on climactic issues or challenges that humanity and actually all of the species of the world, from farmers to fish, as you put it very nice, uh, what in your mind then would explain the origin or is that what you're out to do? Or like you don't have to have a you know stake in the game. You could just say, well, I don't know what it is, but it's not that. I try to nail my colours to the mast because, uh, you know, if I knew for certain what a fabulous conclusion to the book that would be. So I wrestled. I mean, I wrestled for about three years to try and get get an ending to it. Uh, And prior to that, I used to do this thing as a PowerPoint. It started off as a PowerPoint presentation that lasted about an hour. It's the only PowerPoint that I've ever done because I've done loads of them, hundreds of them over the years. You get to the end of it and it doesn't have an end. It's never had an end. So I thought, I was trying to have a nice, comfortable end because people like nice, comfortable endings. But I think I'm leaning more and more towards the idea of, well, intelligent creation structure of some form which you know to the religious that's like oh it's you know it's god it's a creator it's it's whatever but to the non-religious they might say aliens or panspermia or which is you know seeding the life on the planet um I don't have any problems with any of those because I, I, they're almost the same thing, but just using different words. You know, it comes down to semantics at the end of the day. Um, I definitely know that perfection only comes when something is done 
absolutely correctly when it's right. And I also know that organization design intelligence, you know, is something that you can only attribute to almost a perfect being, if you like. So there has to be uh, something that begins it, that creates it, that starts it. But in answering, if, if that's the answer to the question, then what you've done is you've effectively not answered the question because uh, I think I said it in it, there's a, there's a French saying, you know, God defined is God finished. So the minute you get to a point where all of a sudden you understand the thing that made us, then it's no longer the thing that made us because it's become lower than us not higher than us. So whatever it is that's put the whole thing together is an awful lot better than us. It, it's it's bigger than us. It's more intelligent than us. You know, it's probably not even male and female. You know, it's not like Star Trek. It doesn't walk on with two arms, two legs and a head, even if it comes from planet Zog. You know what I mean? It's We, we can't quantify it. Who knows what this thing is? You know, it might just be pure intelligence in a gas cloud. You know, uh, it, it's it's beyond us to know what that is. Again, if you go down the religious route, some people might feel that we will encounter this being, this thing, whatever it is, on death. You know, we may be released from from the box we're in now to a bigger box or to a bigger concept, to a bigger universe. So I'm aware of that in the background all the time. I've got that running in the background all the time. and It's in the book as well. Um, but no, there's, uh, for a beginning, uh, for me, the facts, the actual physical scientific information tells me that it's always been better in the past and if you if you like evolve if you evolve that backwards if you wind it backwards you must get to a point where it's pretty amazing you know it's got to go all the way back to something that's pretty damn good at the start um so I'm going to go with that, mainly because the facts back that up. You know, it doesn't matter whether you're a, a Buddhist or a Hindu or a Christian or a Mormon or, you know, Catholic or whatever you are. All of them, all of them one day will sit down and go, yes, that's where we started. You know, that's where I see it going, you know, in the long term. Uh, and that would be amazing. That would just catapult us into the 21st century like you wouldn't believe, you know, because, um, well, something we can all agree on. You know, and, and again, it, a lot of the religious, a lot of the scientific community, a lot of people, they, they hide the facts. They're not they're scared to admit that that is the direction the arrows are pointing in, you know. But then at the same time, you've, you've got to accept that, you know, there's this death and destruction and this decay. And it's kind of, you know, it's, it's, it's a sword that cuts both ways. You know, in accepting one, you've got to accept the other. Um I don't have a problem with that, but an awful lot of others might, you know, it's uh, it's one of those. The same creator, in essence, that created everything right at the very beginning was probably aware of where this was going to go. And because we're humans and we make value judgments and judgments about righteousness and justice and, and all the rest of it, uh, we'd look at that creator, creator and we'd, we'd, we'd almost accuse them of being wrong. But how can we? Do you know what I mean? It's like... You know, we we just we're not even in the same league. You know, it's not for us to make those those calls. Uh, you know, and I think if people could get to that position, it just it'd just be a better world. You know, everything would be so much better. So yeah, I hope that answered the question. By God, that went round the round the block, didn't it? <laughs> it went perfect. And uh, to something what you said, and it's absolutely perfect. And you're the you're my favorite kind of guy doing research in any area because you're open to all of it. You're like, well, yeah, yeah. this doesn't exclude that. And one thing that I really like about the conversation uh, scientists are having lately is more simulation talk. And the simulation argument at a level, whenever you reach you know a certain level with that, you start zooming out a little bit. 
and uh, any organized religion uh, that doesn't organ that or doesn't organize itself around fear uh, and hate, mm. then I would say yeah. that that at some level, an architect of an extremely advanced digital matrix or a simulation, or a god or a creator of an organic simulation, perhaps, you would be imperceivable to us. The old Arthur C. Clarke quote that any you know high technology would be imperceivable for magic or miracles in this mm. case. So I think because mm. the conversation is so interestingly happening on both sides, and they're both saying the same damn thing. They're just viewing yeah, it through different lenses. Yeah. Eventually, perhaps that will that gap will narrow a little bit and there'll be some common ground. But that's this is why I like guys like you doing the research like this. Also to something that you said about, um, you know, God rearranging itself or us being less than or equivalent to or higher than. Yeah. I, there, there's a, a fun theory that states that if anybody ever figures out the nature of reality, the universe instantly stops and resets and organizes itself in a different way so you can't ever discover it. Uh, yeah, that's that's almost like the uh that's that's the reason why chaos was built in. Mm-hmm. So you're in the you're into chaos formula there, chaos theory and what have you. That that um anyone who's creative, anyone who's an artist, I mean you're a musician yourself, so you know that you you push and you push and you push and you try harder and harder and harder to get better and better and better. Uh, sooner or later you get to a point where you realize that that somehow there is a consciousness that exists and creative people kind of dip into that consciousness. I recently found it in um, Tesla's writings, Tesla reached it and he said it, he actually said it, there is this uh, creative um, thing that exists within everything. But that's as far as he got and that's as far as I've got. You know, we, we kind of know it's there. But I think as I say it in the book, you know, there's so many things that we know are there. We know about eternity and omnipotence and omnipresence. And, you know, we know about time and mathematics and this that, and the other. But there's a point, as you rightly say, there's a point beyond which we can't go. There's a barrier. So the harder you try to be creative, the harder you try to push in, you know, the Einsteins, the Teslas, the Hawkings, they've all tried to push in. But as you say it's like a fail safe you know the harder you push in the harder it pushes back um there'll be a a million scientists on planet earth that listen to this and they'll all be going yeah yeah we've been there we've done it we've been sat in a lab you know all of a sudden we thought wow this is really where it's going you know and then they've thought oh but hang on a minute we don't understand that we don't know where that's going to take us we can't go any further with that um Anyone that does advanced mathematics, the same thing applies. It gets to the point, you know, uh, where you just can't go any further. It won't allow you to go any further with the resources and the physical existence that we have. You just can't get past it at all. But we know it's there. It's, you know, eternity in our hearts. But what does that mean? You know, um, we can have conversations on those levels, but not really understand what it's all about you know you you know it's in your head but you don't really know it in your heart you can feel it in your spirit but there's no physical evidence that you can apply you know there's no uh, you know back to us all being very structured as, as as beings we like things to be you know even on on a bigger level we like them to be established and, and easy to comprehend but nah nah it's like nailing jelly to the ceiling <laughs> it really is <laughs> this, and I, I like that analogy this is yeah. where the idea of as above so below goes and we answer Anthropomorphize a lot of the systems in place here as things that must happen out there because of the as above, so below principle. But perhaps it's not like that at all. Maybe it's just so far out and so crazy that we just have no idea what's going on. I don't know. Some of it's like that. Um, 
I mean, I found that was perhaps the best analogy to use when we were talking about, um, in, in the final chapter of the book, I talk about the idea of escaping from the bounds of the planet. Mm-hmm. And the only way, really, that you can look at the upper atmosphere is to look at how things settle out in a tank of water. You know, dump a handful of soil in a, in a bucket or drop a handful in a glass of water, and it settles out. You know, you get all these different layers, different levels. Turn that upside down if you possibly could. And that's basically what your Van Allen belts are. You know, the bigger the stuff is, the further out it is, the smaller it is, the closer it is. So, again, it's the as above, so below. It is uh, Things do function according to rules. You know, that settling out in liquid is the same as things settling out in gravity. You know, it's a, the two things are operating the same. And it's, it's easy to appreciate that. That's easy to get a handle on. So some things like that, yes, some things are easy to understand. But, you know, the idea of firing something out through that, that's another issue. You know, I'm, uh, I'm not a massive fan of the idea that we can get out past two Van Allen belts, radiation and goodness knows what else. You'll find that in the book as well. You know, it's very hard to chuck stuff out. Uh, the idea of outer space, actually, is the gap between the two Van Allen belts. Most stuff never gets out into into space space. Um, and then you could do another program on, <laughs> did we land on the moon? You know, did we get out there? You know, what's that all about? You, you could do an entire program just on that. Uh, there's a colossal amount of evidence coming out that it, it, it didn't go the way that uh, that NASA would like you to think it went. But now you're now you're into the UFOs and the conspiracy side of it. Uh, we're into all of it all the time, brother. So, yeah, and I'm right there with you. And, you know, NASA, uh, a lot of us think stands for never a straight answer, you know, or not a space agency. And so <laughs> yeah. uh, we we need to have a NASA chat, man. So I'm going to leave that part on a cliffhanger, but I really, really want to ask you about it. But we have just tons to cover here. So um, I, I just want to ask you just a philosophical question back to what you said just real quick, because it was very interesting to me that you said that the closer we get, the more it pushes back. And I agree with you. But it's at this point, talking to you now, that I want to bring up a question that just hit me. So do you feel just philosophically, maybe there's no right or wrong to this, that because things get so strong or resistant when you get closer to the truth of them, I'm looking at it in two ways. So I'm just curious where your mind is. One, uh, it's a way to pass a test of a certain sort, right? It's a a barrier Mm -hmm. to knowledge. So by overcoming it, in, in that right alone, you've earned the right to the knowledge, right? Or is it kind of like an out of bounds, like you said? Um, there are like video games where if you're playing in a certain area and you run too far, it'll tell you, hey, you're out of bounds, you know, turn around. And it'll physically pick you up and turn you around because this is where you're supposed, this is where your attention is supposed to be focused. So it's almost also like, hey, yeah, I mean, you could look over there and pursue that, but you're kind of missing that there's waterfalls back there, man. You know, there's like really fun stuff over there going on and maybe you just go play with your family or something. You know what I mean? It, it seems like maybe one or the two. So what do you think? Um, if there's a creator still knocking around somewhere, I think he's having an in- enormous belly laugh at the moment because that is that is a hugely um, interesting question. Um, I think I think actually the answer the, the answer is yes. That's the, in a nutshell, the answer is yes. I, I think both of those things act together. But uh, if you start to break them down, I think that, yes, there's going to be a limit beyond which we can't go. You know what I mean? You can't swim around in a nuclear reactor. You're going to die. So, you know, we are limited in what we can do. Um, you know, there, we can't climb inside a volcano unprotected because you just burst into flames. So there are limitations that are built in, very obviously built in, to prevent us from going down certain avenues. So I think that's absolutely true. But at the same time, 
At the same time, boy, are there a lot of avenues we can go down that we haven't gone down. You know, I would, if, if I'd have been around uh, in a position of authority in the 1960s when they were talking about chucking all that money at sending something off to the moon, I'd be like, well, don't waste your money. You've got the oceans. You know, what's at the bottom of the Marianas Trench, for goodness sake? Why don't you send something down there? It physically exists. You can physically get to it. Why are we not developing technology to do that? Or get inside a volcano or go under the ice or, you know, why, why are we not in a position now, you know, uh, nearly 100 years down the line from, you know, all these things that we've developed? Why are we not in a position where we've got a really, really good appreciation of the physical world we live in? Because that makes a difference. That does actually change things. You know, why, why, is, why have we not got it? Why have we not sunk all our time and effort and money and et cetera into doing that? Because ultimately, that's what's going to save us. It'll save us as a species. It'll save the planet. It'll save us if there's a cataclysm, you know. I mean, we know the dinosaurs got obliterated. You know, it's 99% certain it was a meteorite just took them all out. That was it. Because they couldn't survive after that had happened. Or the biblical route, you know, there's some enormous flood. We don't know the cause of it, but everything ends up underwater. When it comes back out of the water, people need to survive. People have got to do it. You know, they've got, they've got to make it through the Ice Age and things like that. We know all these things have happened. You know, that's a fact. Why are we not investing money in that direction? You know, um, believe me, there's a journey there that's going to take a lot of generations to get through if we really want to understand that. Um, you know, somebody will be sat there at the end of, of, of this 100-year period, this, uh, this, this period, this century. They'll be sat there looking back at this interview going, ah, well, we know so much more about DNA now. You know, this is, this is not quite how we, we thought it was at the beginning. It's going to be like this, this, and this. That's where we should be going. Not looking at, you know, shooting a tin can with a couple of guys in out past the Van Allen belt at a rock that doesn't appear to have anything on it, if you assume that we can do that, you know, and spending an enormous amount of time and effort and money doing that. Why? Why bother? You know, it's it's it doesn't... It profits and benefits a small number, a relatively small number of living human beings on planet Earth compared to what benefits we'd get from the other direction. So I think, like I say, the answer's yes to both directions. I think in one direction, there's a limit. And as hard as we push it, I don't think we'll ever break through. It is like that boundary around a computer game where you can't leave the platform. And then at the other side, yes, there's so much more. You know, there's, there's so much more. Maybe the answers that we actually seek are, are more in that direction. Time, space, you know, relativity, gravity, uh, whatever we can do, that's what we've got to play with. You know, we, we know we can work with that. So I, that's where I'd put my money. That's the direction I think we should be going in. Actually, uh, I'm, I'm also going to assume that that is the direction that we are genuinely going in. But a lot of the twaddle that you hear about, um, uh, and indeed a lot of the stuff that does physically happen, but doesn't really have a good reason to happen. A, a lot of strangeness that goes on is covering up where they're going, you know, that direction. A lot of it is smoke and mirrors because they don't actually want you to know what they're doing. They don't want you to know where that's, that road takes takes them uh, because it's to their advantage for you not to know, you know. Um, it could even be to humanity's advantage for you not to know. You know, if, if, if you know, you can throw a spoonful of sugar into a chemical reaction and it creates a black hole, you don't want, you know, little Johnny doing that as his, as his science experiment, you know. I know I'm exaggerating to prove a point, but, you know, you don't want everybody 
barreling into something that at, at some point is not understood. Um, you know, uh, uh, the classic is UFOs. Uh, we had we had an incident over here because um, I live between Manchester and Liverpool. So we've got airports, lots of airports. Manchester, there's a, a big hill at the back of Manchester uh, called Rivington. And it was classic, classic UFO territory. People used to sit there and there were actual close-up photographs of triangles with big lights in the middle and a light on each corner. And they were whizzing back to and doing all kinds of gymnastics o- over Winter Hill. And it was going on for years, about seven or eight years. And then the Ministry of Defence came out and just went yeah we're, we're testing stealth aircraft that was it uh, but it suited them for everybody around here to think they were ufos you know but they actually just came out and went yeah yeah we've got them but there was photographs of these black triangle things coming out of aircraft hangars and that's what they were doing they were supersonic aircraft that's all they were with covered in stealth but the lighting configuration underneath people thought they were ufos doing all these gymnastics over the local hill that's a typical sort of cover-up scenario if you like where they just keep something going because they basically just don't want anybody to know what they're up to but then the next question then is you know with films like men in black and stuff like that are they kind of showing you what the future is you know um without actually telling you that they've already got it you know it's already there um when i did europe's roswell the ufo crash the stuff that we fished out the wreckage they couldn't identify it back then uh, it crashed in the 80s the wreckage turned up um, we had it analyzed and i did the documentary in the 1990s and nobody knew what the hell it was and no idea whatsoever now it looks like it was a primitive form of graphene attached to uh, duralumin which is a form of um, alloy that's used in fighter aircraft but we didn't know what it was back then. And, and, and even British Aerospace couldn't tell us what it was because it, it's come, come from some form of secret vehicle that has crashed and it's obviously fragmented. But we physically had it. So, you know, it wasn't some kind of strange alien thing that, you know, came from Mars or whatever. It, we physically had it. And 30 or 40 years on, we know what it is now. You know, it's, it's finally come out. I think a lot of things that we're seeing now will have, have the same outcome. You know, the same thing will happen again because I can't believe that they're just pumping all this money into chucking tin cans out into space. That That's not what it's all about. It's not at all. They want you looking sort of that way instead of looking this way. You know, that's that's what it's all about. Yeah, it's it, the answers here. The answer is out there somewhere, but it's it's down here. Definitely. I feel the same. And I feel also that it's probably a few things. It could be contrived, uh, the narrative, let's say, if it's not accurate and it's not what they say. And there are they are hiding something. It's probably definitely uh, the actual structure of this place, like the what this place is actually made of and what it is. Let's say if it's flat. This is why people have arguments about flat earth or not. Um, but uh, Or maybe like a realm or something like that. But that is what it seems. And the more they fake things and the more obviously they fake things, uh, you know, a lot of people have pointed this out. You get, NASA gets $57 million a day to yep. do whatever they're doing. And so if they're lying about stuff and they're green screening things, a lot of their budget does not go into their special effects because whoever they're hiring for it is awful uh (laughs) my nephew could do way better you know and he'd only charge you like a 100 bucks or something like that to do (laughs) so uh, i'm with you on this and i think that it is a uh, deliberate disguising of information i would say uh it's definitely like you said man pointing you in the wrong direction and whenever you really do look in within and within yourself instead of out there and all of this it's a great metaphor for i mean spiritually this is what people talk about yeah Uh, Yeah. this is where the changes occur and where the real knowledge is exactly back to what you said so i'm fascinated by the perspective so excellent 
I want to talk about some skulls. Uh, the okay. head is an interesting one. I am very fascinated about elongating skulls. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Okay. Um, where do I dive in? Okay, well, let's pick up the conversation logically from where we've left off. At the end of the day, most people assume that if it's a very large capacity cranium, it probably has something to do with aliens. That's the assumption, but it is only an assumption because at the end of the day, we've got those skulls, we've got them, and we've got depictions of them, we've got models of them. Um, the whole elongated cranium thing physically exists. You know, it's here on planet Earth. It's in a number of different societies. The Celts had it, the Egyptians had it, uh, you know, Genghis Khan and the Huns had it. Um, and, and most shockingly, those same people appear in America, on the American continent. So it does kind of shake the narrative a little bit in terms of um, American history. Um, very, very, very recently, they analysed some of the Paracas schools um, and they came back um, either European or Middle Eastern in origin. That's the DNA, essentially. Um, I've paraphrased that tremendously. So if anybody's out there, please don't shoot me down for that. But in, in, in a nutshell, that's how it's looking. That's that's their trail, if you like. That's where it takes them back. Um, but because they're physically here, you're not digging these things up out of crashed flying saucers. You know, you're digging these things up from archaeological sites, archaeological context. So you've got to accept right at the outset that wherever these schools turn up, they're obviously a different form of us, or we're a different form of them, depending on which way around you look at it. And as the DNA is coming back, that is precisely what's coming out, especially the reliable science and the reliable DNA coming from South America and the Paracas, etc. They've got the most extreme skulls. I mean, I, I, I am secretly, secretly a fan of Eric von Daniken. I know that name, you know, brings terror into the scientific community. But what I always say to everybody, at the end of the day, he popularized and publicized the identification and the, the release and the bringing out of that information. Yes, he got bits of it spectacularly wrong, but who cares? Because at the end of the day, what a publicist, you know what I mean? Um, and some of the photographs he's got of, of, of the triple capacity skulls are just out of this world. We're now at a stage where there have been constructions, reconstructions of these, these super beings as they are. Um, it's got to the point where the scientific community are using terms like Lord of the Rings world. When they're looking back, they're saying, OK, um, if there can be, you know, 30 different species of cat, 30 different species of dog, you know, 30 different species of monkey. Why can't there be 30 different species of human beings, you know, from tiny right up to giant, which is the same pattern. We're back to the as above, so below and all that. It's the same pattern. It's a recognized pattern of biology living on planet earth the facts the actual facts are supporting that so now when we find you know uh giant uh footprints in the Porksley riverbed and things like that which are huge human footprints and we you know we we find uh all kinds of things like the little tiny uh, guys that they got off the island near in indonesia the little hobbit people that never grew they never grew more than about three foot six you know uh, all these different things that are turning up all of a sudden they all make sense when you think well you know they're all different variations of human species and the dna that's coming out of some of the remains where they can get it is showing exactly that 
now they've got mystery races. They've got people like the Denisovans. They've got Neanderthals breeding and producing other things. They've got two Asian communities of human beings whose DNA are different, and they've never even found the physical remains. It's just they're interbred. So those traces, if you like, those fingerprints are left in other DNA. So the world now is suddenly starting to look like this Lord of the Rings world, which, which is ab- absolutely fantastic. But it's not aliens. Back to where we came in at the beginning. It's nothing whatsoever to do with aliens. So in the book, I take great pains to try and explain what the human skull is and what the human brain is. And all of a sudden, in the process of doing that, it explains where a lot of the other mysteries come from, like the giant 30-ton blocks at Baalbek that they've shoved halfway up a wall. How the hell did they move them? I mean, there's recently in Russia, apparently, there's a mountain out there built from blocks that are just so ridiculous, they don't even look like blocks. Somebody went out there and just built something out of these enormous great stones, things like that. Um, all the ancient technologies, uh, you know, the Baghdad battery, the light bulbs that they found in Egypt, you know, the little aeroplanes that turn up in South America made of gold, you name it, go right the way through, you know, Arthur C. Clarke's Mysterious World, do the whole nine yards. It's, it's all explainable if you just have that triple capacity head because that's equivalent to, and the only, the only way I can say it, it's equivalent to three Einsteins. That's if you want an equivalent, it's easy to understand that individual with that brain is capable of the calculation, the appreciation, the understanding of three Einsteins. So what you're looking at there is a supercomputer. It's a biological supercomputer times that by all the different races that had that capacity that used to exist. And all of a sudden, the idea of, you know, levitating things and using sound waves to do things and, you know, the, the whole science, if you like, it just it drops off the Richter scale. You know, what, what those people were capable of doing with that brain capacity. But it does also bring in other things as well. It brings in interesting points, which is if they could do that, if they could build buildings like that and we've got the physical remains, what could they do that's not physical? Mm-hmm. Where else could they go? What appreciation did they have, for example, of, of the ecological side of things and the survival of the planet and how they operated? You know, if I was a, a super intelligent race like that, I would do everything I possibly could not to damage the planet and not to leave any rubbish behind and, you know, not to do anything of that nature. Because, of course, I would understand the planet. I'd understand how it operated, how it worked on, on a huge scale. So you don't necessarily just fall over the archaeological remains because in many cases they're just not there you know the native americans lived in harmony with their environment well just times that by you know ten thousand, because that's what these people would have been like but at the same time did they also crack other problems did they have atomic energy did they have electricity how did they view things like solar power wind power and, and you know all, all the the elements if you like the elemental side of the planet what else were they capable of doing with the capacities they had you know if you just had one of these guys with the enormous head that would be tremendous you know just to be able to sit and chat to one of these guys there were tens of thousands of them all over planet earth they would have pulled up the entire planet literally by its bootlaces they would have run this place in a way that, that we simply couldn't at the end of the day my only conclusion is that they were in the book in particular, that they were so intelligent, they were so super intelligent, they realised that their own end was inevitable. 
that I think they reached a point where they realised that, that there was not enough of them uh, genetically or physically to continue in the way that, that they previously would have done. And then they would also have had problems with us. Um, archaeologically, wherever we go, we tend to wipe out the opposition. So you've then got this other race, this violent, nasty, kind of almost thuggish race that's out there to get everything it possibly can. All the things that are bad about the human race, they'd have just spotted that immediately they'd have seen that coming a wave of that coming at them and i think they just thought well do you know what death's not a problem to us we don't fear death we don't fear ducking out of this place uh, this place is programmed it's going to go where it's going to go you know uh, whatever set this place up did it right so if it's the right time for us to bow out we'll bow out i think that's how they went i think they, they literally went gracefully into the night they just went silently into the night and ducked out and what we're left with now i mean the practice schools some of them are as recent as three to five hundred years old so we've only recently lost them that that's what's really sad that 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 amazing race especially the practice uh, have, have only recently departed so all the knowledge everything they had uh, has just gone i mean i have i have trouble remembering where i leave things around the house you know these guys probably remembered 30 generations back you know they'd have been able to sit down and tell you all the stories all the information you needed to know they'd have been able to do all that just from memory they didn't have to write anything down uh the guys that sat in the observatories out in south america planning the heavens mapping the heavens and all that they'd have just done most of it in the head they wouldn't have needed to calculate because they'd, they'd have had the capacity to do that um and i'm hoping that comes out in the book which then leads on to where we came in again, back to the aliens again, these guys with enormous heads, you know, and what have you. Um, I tried very much to come up with something I was comfortable with that kind of fitted into that jigsaw puzzle. I'm not happy with them coming flying in from Venus or whatever, you know, let's just come in. No, that doesn't sit comfortably with me. I don't think they're, uh, I mean, Nephilim is a thing that's banded about, but a Nephil, I mean, a, a biblical study and all that linguistically, if you go back, Nephil just means giant. It just basically means a big bloke. So, yeah, of course, the Nephilim bred. Of course they did, you know, because they were big. They were big fellas. It's got nothing to do with angels coming down with wings out of, you know, silver discs and breeding with women and all that. So that's nonsense. That's something that's only come up in the, in the 20th, 20th century. Um, I wasn't comfortable with any of these ideas at all. And then it just dawned on me. If they could do what they were capable of doing, then they could time travel. It's that simple. They know that they could get in at one end and come out at the other end. But that also would explain in a backwards way why we're getting them now. Yes. It's I not agree. aliens coming to visit us because it's, you know, we're important in their past and they're our future. It's the other way around. It's in, in effect, in a way, it's the caretakers coming back to make sure that what they left ends up where it's supposed to end up. Now, to me, that makes a lot more sense. If you value something and you love something and you understand something, you're going to watch it, look after it, care for it. And where it finishes up, in a way, is more important. Where that project, that thing that's part of you ends up, that is really important. So I don't say that these things don't exist. I'm not one of these people that goes, oh, you know, you, you're hallucinating. There's no such thing, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I do believe that they physically exist. I don't think it's a case of, you know, anything mystical or magical or coming through dimensions or anything like that. It's simply science that is way out of our reach. We just do not get it. We don't understand it. 
But I seriously think these guys are coming from the past because if you can do what you can do and we can see them doing it and they can do that now, they could have done that at any point, any point in time, you know. And and there is this trickle, there's a trickle through time. Uh, you pick it up as an archaeologist historian of these guys popping up. Things appear, you know, in paintings and carvings and all this, that and the other. It has got to have something to do with time travel because wherever they go, it's the same people, it's the same technologies, it, it's everything is the same. And it's it's in one respect, it's I'm saying the same thing that others have said in the past before, but in another respect, I'm pushing forward something that a lot of people have not considered um, because they're taking the easy way out. They're just saying, well, yeah, they're aliens, you know, they're flying in from wherever, whatever planet. I don't think that's the case. Also, it that also plays into the back to the NASA conversation. It plays into that narrative, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? Um that's where I think it comes from. So, yeah, something crashed at Roswell, you know, so they had something sat in Area 51 or whatever, you know. Yes, of course they did. But it didn't come from another planet. And I think there's some guys sat out there now that know, you know, if they watch this interview, I'll challenge them and I'll go to the face, you know. They know that these things are essentially us. It's the past. It's something from the past coming to now. And because the time travellers are capable of telling us what's coming next, they're capable of sharing advanced technology, et cetera, et cetera. But it's not future technology. They're simply sharing what they've always known. And that's why it works. That's why it fits in. They're taking what we've corrupted. They're taking out the corruption, out of the chaos. They're removing all of that. And they're going, this is how you do it. And then all of a sudden, when we do it, hey, it works, you know, because it fits. It fits that ball, that creation. You know, it's part of that that world that we live in and it works. And the more you kind of think down those lines, the more it all makes sense. It really does. It make it makes complete sense. Did I answer the question? I'm not quite sure whether I answered the question in that. My friend, yeah. you, you answered it so well and so amazingly, and you just blew my mind with that uh, right there because it's it's always something I've dipped my toe in as far as my favorite. Like if I had to plant a fl- I don't plant my flag or nail our colors to the mast, as you said, which I love that. I'm going to start using that. <laughs> I, I uh, don't, we don't do that here, but uh, one thing that I love is marrying the interdimensional uh, philosophy. I know um, Paul Askoff came on the show also with Flying Disc Press. And yeah. then as well, um, the Kinsella boys, Ronnie um, had him and Philip on recently again uh, and Ronnie was talking about something that blew my mind as well about UFO crashes in general because I've always wondered just curiously to myself why they crash why we're able to bring them down if they're so highly advanced and technologically crazy cool why do they allow themselves to be taken down is how I've always phrased it to myself yeah. because I felt like that's what was happening. Ronnie uh, came up with an awesome idea with this and then they're doing it on purpose. They're leaving things almost like breadcrumbs. Like you said, they pop in throughout history and we've all in the community thought that it was the U.S. government perhaps. And it might still be this doesn't exclude them. Yeah, from that, yeah. But doing what we call predictive programming, meaning where they put the you know, um, you know, and it started with World of War, War of the Worlds, and they started introducing the idea of this to other people. But they say that they come from other planets because they don't want to scare you, and they also don't want to let you know that time travel is real and a thing. Because then, yeah. they, then people would be asking pesky questions like, "Well, why don't you just go back and keep Jesus from getting crucified, or why don't you go back and fix the whole Hitler thing?" You know, so maybe there's something like that, which also ties into another theory I've got about the entities themselves and how they communicate with us. There's an example I use on the show a lot about the movie, The Matrix. And in that movie, there's a scene where Morpheus, the protagonist, goes to meet something called the Oracle. And she tells him that he is not the one, but he is the one. But the person who is supposed to give him the most knowledge and wisdom and truth, he thought, 
was the one that lied to him. But what he needed to hear was the lie so that he could become the one. How this yes. leads to the extraterrestrials is perhaps they tell us things to guide us in a certain direction based on where we are intellectually and what we can handle as a species. Because if they interact with us at all, usually it's a myriad of things. Of course, it's take care of the planet, which, yeah, it's like we're renting this place for a little bit. We're only borrowing it. So they're like, we're going to want that back. So make sure you take care of it and get rid of your nukes and stuff. Also, um, they tell people that they're from the Pleiades or other star systems, but you would want to let people know that or tell people that and disguise the truth yeah. uh, that there is time travel because again of the same pesky questions of suffering and horrors that could be avoided ideologically but then you think about that i what i like and take most from this and what i find really really interesting is this marries all my favorite again theories um that they're always from here they're extraterrestrial like interterrestrials crypto terrestrials is right yes. musgrave yes. evan calls them uh, and then they uh, could do basically with the high intellect that we're talking about here. Yeah, sound vibration. I mean, we we really don't know what they're capable of, but we know that they would probably be capable of simulating woo woo to us. So they could implant the screen memories that we talk about um, that people say they saw an owl turns out in hypnotic regression. You got abducted uh, there. You know, but, so to this point, what I mean is the point I'm making here uh, would be that perhaps they could implant in our minds the idea of multiple races of different entities visiting us from other places so they could alter the way we see them oh, now we're going to show up as reptilians to people even though we're only these elongated skull guys from a long time ago uh, now we're going to show up as greys now we're going to show up as pleiadians and look like fabio you know uh, we're going to go mess with this billy meyer guy for a little bit there there's all of these things and this is what one of the things makes me think about because then it's back to, all, to what I've kind of leaned toward more than anything, which is like it's all the same damn thing. Could be like a version of gin or something to where they're just not being honest. I've never trusted the phenomena. You know what I mean? I've never just blindly gone, oh, yeah, yeah, what you're telling everybody's true. And it could be something as simple but as glorious as this right here. So I love your hypothesis, man. I well, it, it, love it. it swallows up a lot of what you've just said yes. as well because yes. if it is a Lord of the Rings type world, then everything you've just described is possible. Any one of those creatures could travel through time in those machines from, you know, lizard men to giants to midgets to whatever, because they are that diverse. You know, in the past, that's that's how that that, that is. Uh, and, and the second thing that comes out is, is um, as you say, you could go back if you wanted to and change history. But I think the rule is that you can't. You're just simply not allowed to because of the chaos that would result from that. So if they are from our past than they are from this world. And to some extent, while they are so far ahead of us in terms of what they're capable of, they still have to play by the same rules. And that's what comes out. When you look at abductions and crashes and all the different things that, that they do and uh, hypnotism and implanting and scientific experiments and all the sorts of things that they get up to, they are still essentially only doing the same things that we do. That, that, that's all they're doing. So again, it, it looks like they are still limited within the scope of the planet itself. So it almost means that although they are a super race and they are, you know, from the past and they are superior in so many ways, if they were put here at the beginning and they are simply from a different period, a different phase in the planet's history, they are still limited by the same rules by the same laws that we're limited by um you know it's, it's it's the old story you know as hard as you try to come up with an alien 
it still nearly always ends up having two arms, two legs and a body and a face. And it's a bloke running around in a suit because we're not capable of conceiving beyond what we have information available to conceive from. And I think the aliens are in the same position, aliens in the broadest sense. These 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 guys, they're in this exactly the same position. If you could sit down and have a beer with a seven foot tall grey with a massive cranium and just sit down and have a chat with this guy over a beer, I'm sure he would actually say to you, well, you're absolutely right, and we're stuck with it. We're stuck with it the same as you, you know, I, and I genuinely think that's the case. I think they are trapped in exactly the same planet, the same ball that we're trapped on, and it fits. It really does fit. Also, it also has the advantage of all the other guys that have all the other ideas, all the other people you've interviewed and the people that, that are into the same things we're into, the authors, the writers, the producers, etc. They're actually right. You can't sit down and have a row with them and go, you know, well, you're talking a load of rubbish. You know, you're not correct. You're not right. And and yet the same applies to the people who've had the experiences, the witnesses and the people who've seen these things and all the rest of it. It literally ticks every box. It, it nails everything. You know, it's it's almost like Einstein's theory of relativity. You know, that's it. You've reached the end of that road. You know, boom, that's it. Now we know what it is. It, you're almost at that point. I, I feel like in the book, it teeters on the verge of, of wrapping that up and saying, you're all right. All that information, it's all inclusive. Nobody out there is wrong. Nobody can sit down and go, oh, you didn't see that. You know, that never happened to you. You're making that up. Because actually there is that possibility that they're right. You know, it's always there that, you know, and, and, and I think if people got behind it and, and started to think down those lines and they unified and started sharing information, you might actually end up with about, I don't know, 16 different species that, you know, keep turning up. I, I know there was a, a thing with the shapes of UFOs in the 1970s. People were trying to look at them and they, I think they came up with about 40 different varieties or whatever. There was a chart. It was like a UFO spotting chart. You could almost do the same with the creatures that come with them. Sooner or later, you're just going to have a list of, of what used to live on planet Earth in the past. You know, that's where it's going to end up. But it's all inclusive, you know. The same crazy madness, the same variety that is there in human beings, human species, human skulls, etc. That same craziness, the chaos and the madness applies to them as well because they're part of this same crazy creation. They're just not from this particular paradigm, this time period. They don't function like we function. They don't think like we think but they're still made of the same stuff you know it's i end the book by saying we're all stardust we are you know we're all made from the same material that the rest of the cosmos is made from etc so are these guys you know they're made from the same stuff once we get our head around that i think we could literally take the whole ufo community and just move forward we've got a clear direction and a clear vision you know clear clear way ahead that could change you know long after i'm gone it could change what happens in the next century the way people move on and look at things um for me a turning point was um George Adamski flying saucers has landed. My dad had that on his bookshelf. Uh, he had a first edition and I pulled it off. I think it's 1953 it's published or whatever. And I always go back to that because that's where my interest in UFOs started. I think it was about seven or eight years old. And I, I think in my lifetime where we've come from that book to where we are now. And again, what I'm saying about time travel and about the way these beings are and the information that's come out and starting to come out now, uh, we've moved so far from that book 
to where we are now. But the book is still valid. It still includes that, you know, those strange looking flying saucer photos that are in there and, you know, the stuff that was photographed against the moon and all this kind of stuff. None of it's wrong. You know, none of it's wrong. It can be encompassed within the bounds of the idea that they are just another variety of us that just know us an awful lot more than us, a sort of a lot more than we maybe will ever know. And it, it does go back again, back to the book again. I'm, I'm plugging the book here. I'm doing a really good job of plugging the book. I usually don't. I usually go way off, off piste. I usually end up, you know, goodness knows where, but it does go back to the guys with the big heads, you know, the human supercomputer. I know if people read the book, they're probably going to get to the bit about human heads. They're going to be like, you know, what? why am I reading this? Why do I need to know how many plates make up a skull and, you know, which bits of the brain do what or, you know, whatever. When you get to the end of that chapter, and you move on to the stretch head guys, it really starts to make sense because some of the bits of their heads that were bigger than ours mean that the areas that we know about also are bigger. They expand, you know, the different glands that you have, the different areas in the, in the brain get bigger and you start to think, well, you know, some people have religious vision, visions and they have religious experiences, you know, and God talks to them and, you know, you've got Moses up the mountain and he's chatting away and all the rest of it. What could these guys with the enormous heads do in that sort of department? What were they capable of where their religious consciousness sat in their heads? You know, it does raise that question, uh, you know, were they psychic? Could they read minds? Could they levitate? You know, did they have X-ray vision? Could they just speak to God like he was on the end of a telephone? You know, where does it take you? Because it's all bigger. Everything's bigger. So, uh, yeah, that's where I came down at the end of it with, with as an idea that these guys are just made of the same stuff as us. They're just coming through. So, yeah. Well, it's brilliant. All of your book is necessary, which of course, guys, linked in the show notes. Uh, yeah, highly, yeah. highly recommend. I know we talk a lot of, about a lot of books here, but this one is special and different. So definitely check it, is it out. Different. Yeah. It's just amazing, man. You're such a phenomenal writer as well. So which makes <laughs> it even you. even more enjoyable because you're not struggling with your writing style. You're enjoying your writing style. Oh, I love it. So I uh, wanted to ask you about Crystal Skulls. So what do Crystal Skulls? What role do they play in this entire story? Uh, oh, okay. The, well, the, the, the first skull I really took any interest in was, was, was this fella. It's a, a copy of the Mitchell Hedges. Yeah. There it is. That's a copy of the Mitchell Hedges skull. I just thought I'd throw that one in. Um, I started looking at the material, quartz, uh, silicon. Um, if I was an ancient race, why would I take the trouble to bother to make something like that. That is an enormous, enormous undertaking. It's just not easy. They reckon it could have took 20 or 30 years to polish the Mitchell Hedges skull to the level it's at. Uh, under electron microscopes, there, there aren't any tool marks on it. There just aren't. They can't, you know, there's no drill marks. There's no, you know, it doesn't show where they filed the eyes out or anything like that. It's just phenomenal. So why would I bother with that? What What's the key to all this? Well, it actually came by accident, um, the key to it, because uh, I saw an article on uh, some guys that had, uh, in the, I think it was 20, 2013, uh, down south in this country. Uh, they'd found out how to write information on glass. Uh, so they're making CDs out of glass, out of these glass discs. But then I thought, what is a, what is a glass disc? Well, it's silicon. It's going back to silicon. It's made of sand. That skull is made of sand. This planet is made of sand. The computer I'm talking to you on now that has silicon chips in it and the lenses, the glass lenses and the screen and everything, it's the same stuff. 
it's silicon again it's going back to sand so i really started pushing hard into this whole thing to do with sand and silicon and there's, there's always been this thing amongst the the crystal community um that uh quartz is a recorder you know it records stuff and most people go ah you're talking rubbish you know this is it's nonsense it's pseudoscience you know it's, uh, but no these guys are recording data in five dimensions onto glass discs and they can read it back and it's there now so you look at something like that you look at the crystal skull and you think if i could read it what's in it what's in that then it gets even more interesting okay this is where it starts to really get interesting because not all crystal skulls are made of that type of crystal some of them look a bit more like this fella um this one's uh, rose quartz and you've got lots of other types of quartz you've got uh, citrine quartz you've got uh, amethyst quartz that's what it is and the more i started looking into it you've even got things like carnelian which is isn't renowned for being quartz but it's got a very high silicon content flint has got a very high silicon content i'm like wow right okay i'm an archaeologist i love this you know there they are sitting there in the cave mouth smacking out these flint tools and they're made of silicon that's what it is it's silicon so it just absolutely started to blow my mind and then the clincher the real clincher at the end of the day uh they did a scientific modeling of planet earth and the biggest problem they've had is every time they stick a magnetic iron core into the center of the computer model the whole thing just goes wrong the planet ceases to function it does not work with an iron core and I've, i can't remember the name of the guy but some bright spark said i'll tell you what there's that much silicon knocking around let's try a silicon core They've got it to the point now where they can tell you that the, the core of the earth, the center of the earth, to make it work, to get rid of, I think it's Olsen's paradox, which is where everything goes wrong. The electric fields don't work. The magnetic fields don't work. To get rid of that paradox, that core is made of amethyst. So you are spinning on a lump. Hey, good man. Good man. Yeah, there's a giant lump of that. <laughs> Basically, it's the same as, as the same as that skull over there. Same as that. It's just quartz with impurities in it. It's capable of doing something that ordinary quartz can't do. It's just I can't remember what makes amethyst. To be honest, I'm not quite sure. They know what turns it purple, but that's what that's the formula they reckon is the core of the planet. So I'm thinking now I know. Now I've got a reasonable idea why the Aztecs started banging these fellas out. This is a real one. That's why they chose quartz as the center of all things. The human experience of the planet through the head, through the face, through the senses, everything, the whole planet centers on quartz. Quartz is the key. And I got back to the point where, I mean, you, you can have silicon, um, but you can also have carbon. But carbon doesn't work on its own. Only silicon has got all the necessary uh, chemical compositions and everything else going for it that, that produces life. It, it is literally, that is the key to our existence. And the next question was, who told them? How the hell did they find that out? You know, you're talking about, you, you look at the Aztecs and you think, you know, they lived in a jungle in the middle of, you know, this Yucatan Peninsula and all the rest of it. How on earth did they cotton on to the fact that crystal is that important really is that important and then there's always a kicker you know there's always a kicker at the end and uh, and the kicker is you're not going to believe what doesn't develop if you don't have silicon the brain the brain 
the brain silicon deficiency a deficiency of silicon in a developing human being will cause your brain to fail so it's actually essential to the human head now that is a very recent scientific discovery as as we develop as human beings as we're actually made as we are created in the ovary in in the in the womb if you don't have silicon your brain fails Damn. I'm going to tie this together with you uh, for you right now in the most amazing way. Have you ever heard of of the Arecibo crop circle? Um, I've heard of a lot of crop circles, but not uh, not by name. Uh, You might, if you tell me what the design is, I might recognize the design. Yes. So we we get loads of them over here. It's all good. And I'm actually just going to go ahead and I'll uh, put it up in the video. So audio only audience check for the video link in the show notes. Um, Video audience right here is the Arecibo um, crop circle. Now what this is, is it's basically a 10 point plan that we sent out into space first, by the way. So this is on a plate where it had all of our descriptive. I want to say uh, Sagan did this, but I can't really remember to be perfectly honest with you here. But what means is we sent out an information out into the star system. It had 10 points on it, including where we're located, what we're made of, which is most important. And then a little uh, kind of picture diagram of what we look like bipedal. Yep. Okay. Yep. Well, where we had our carbon as our chemical makeup, we got an answer from a crop circle that's not human made. Well, not Excellent. human from this time period made. Yeah. And yeah. It answered the 10 points all in order of how we sent them out with their own. It showed the star systems they're allegedly from, but also where chemical composition was, where we were carbon, theirs was silicon. So they're silicon-based life forms. So there's already a tie-in to this entire theory that's here on the planet. Well, that's it. In in a nutshell, that's it. That is essentially it. Uh, It was the plaque that went out on the Voyager. When they send Voyager, the Voyager probe out, exactly it's right. the plaque that's attached. I think yep. it was Sagan that did that one, yep. as, as yep. I remember. Mm-hmm. That would make a lot of sense. Uh, the chains that you can make, the molecular chains um, that, that come out of silicon, are um, you've got to combine them with other things, which is why that's essential for us, because that is the, the building bricks, if you like, the building blocks. Whereas carbon is a simpler, it's a much simpler chain and and the carbon side of it doesn't function as well. It doesn't operate as well, but there's so much carbon on planet earth. There's so much of it. It's, I think it's the second or third most abundant um, created chemical or whatever. Um, It's also to do with it being a solid and being a gas. You've got to have certain other things for us to be what we are. But again, it makes sense that if you take some of those things away, so you finish up with something focusing on silicon, then they would they would be fundamentally different. They would be very, very different creatures and very, very different beings capable of different things, you know, definitely capable of different things. But if there is a creator, if a creator built all this place, then one of the first things that that creator put anywhere was silicon. It was sand, it was glass, it was quartz, you know. That's one of the very first things that happened at the beginning. There's even a theory that uh, there's an idea in uh, in a lot of the ancient myths. Uh, they have this idea that the earth solidified out of a liquid. There's a lot of that kind of thing going on. The Egyptians had it. They had dry land coming up as a as a, a reed raft out of out of the, the liquid. Uh, in the Bible, it says that you know there was water and it was without form and void, and then everything else gets built out of that. It, uh, from a chemist's point of view, from a scientific point of view, that's what happens when you create crystals. They solidify. They solidify out of a liquid form. Um, 
So it is, it's the fundamental building blocks. I do actually mention it. I do a reasonably good job in the book of, of covering it. Um, but yes, absolutely. Yeah, that's fantastic. I, I get in a response back, you know, in a, in a way, the response doesn't matter whether it comes from another planet or another time. It, again, it's back to the all inclusive. We actually got a response. Yes. You know, it, it doesn't matter where they got the information from the platform either, you know, whether it was the designer and they realized we'd sent it out and it, it, the information came from here or whether they suddenly caught wind of it, you know, when it got so many million million miles away it doesn't really matter the point is we got a reply we got a response so in in a sense that response is really important because it does mean that these things are how can i put it well on our wavelength you know they're they're in our backyard then they're not a million miles away from us whatever they are wherever they are they're, they're not that far away and they're not absentee either i don't think they're absentee i think they are very much aware of what's going on I really do. I, I love this idea and I like it a lot because it marries a lot of other things that I think about as well, as well as uh, alternative history and how uh, humanity is actually entropied over time and we've degraded, you know, we've de-evolved yeah. from these things rather than we are evolving into them, which that was kind of the hope before, you know, that was kind of the light at the end of the tunnel with the future humans coming back in time machines is, well, we make it, you know, at some level, mm. like we at least survive long enough for us to turn into these bulbous head things and come back with, <laughs> play with our ancestors' beeholes, you know what I mean? So I, I think, though, that with this information that you're putting out, uh, it's fascinating, man. Your book is phenomenal. Of course, all the ways to find you are going to be linked down in the show notes. Uh, we'll probably wrap it on this one, but I uh, think this is fascinating, man. You're a okay, delight. Yeah. You're a phenomenal guest, by the way. Uh, you're just oh, amazing. You. So, uh, if, if, if people do want to find me, I'm going to make it about as simple as, as humanly possible. There's only really two ways to get me on an international level. One is to come and find me on Facebook. And my site's completely open. It's always been completely open. But I know Facebook has become dodgy and un unreliable of recent times. The other way is to just send me an email. You know, if, if you really that, if, if they contacted you and you felt that what they were trying to contact me over was, was of an, an important nature, by all means, email me. Um, and if I just leave it at that, I mean, that it couldn't be simpler, really. I, I don't have hundreds of websites and thousands of places you can go and get me and all this kind of thing. I'm, I'm looking into Twitter. I'm looking into YouTube. I'm looking into these other things. But for me, it's always worked Facebook or email. So it's really simple. Really, really simple. I like it. Keep it simple. And uh, yeah. I'll actually uh, leave you with uh, what. Dr. Michael P. Masters calls because he has the theory that they're intertempestrials, that they are future humans coming back in time machines. But I, I love your thing because, again, it kind of shows to the ancient knowledge that we lost. Yes. And you well, know, in, 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 in a sense, it's important that time to them is not important. Right. It's irrelevant. Maybe they are from the future, but they're also from the past, but they're not. They're not from either. Yeah. Because <laughs> time to them is just of no importance. It's this, it really is irrelevant. It, exactly. It's like the saying in uh, the joke in Terminator Salvation, uh, Terminator, one of the Terminator movies, uh, Genesis. Okay. He says, when do we want time travel? And the other guy says, uh, it's irrelevant. So because yes. when you have it, time doesn't matter, right? Um, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, but I uh, think this has been a phenomenal conversation. Like I said, I can't thank you enough for coming on. We have a lot more oh, to talk pleasure. about. So I look forward to yeah. speaking with you again in the future. Please. All yeah, the ways, please. all the, both of the ways that you want to be found <laughs> will be linked down in the show notes, as well as though all your books as well. I'm definitely going to make thank sure you. that folks know about that. So uh, Mark Ollie, you're welcome back anytime, brother. Thank you so much, man. It has been a pleasure. And High noon in Texas again sometime. I really hope so. <laughs> really hope so. Thank you. 
Man, that's awesome. I love theories like this. I love uh, taking my favorite one, which is, of course, y'all know this, future humans coming back at time machines and just flipping it on its head and making it the inverse. It's past humans that were way cooler than us coming future. You know, it's like I, I made this uh, comment to Mark off air, uh, so I'll share it with y'all, but it's kind of like uh, we're the kids that got left home over the weekend at our parents' house and our parents are coming back home. And we had a party and just kind of screwed everything up. But anyway, uh, so all the ways, again, to find him, link down in the show notes. Make sure that you check out his book. It drops March 1st, Crystal Skulls and Human Heads, The Mystical History of Glass and the Extinction of the World. Fascinating stuff. He's a phenomenal author, and you guys will absolutely love it. So also down in the show description down there are our affiliate links. So Food Forest Abundance, make sure that you check those guys out. Libsyn, if you want to start your own podcast, that's who I host through. Could not recommend them more. And then as well, if you were going to buy any damn thing, any damn thing at all uh, through Amazon, uh, run it through our link because it helps the show. It's a simple thing. It doesn't cost you anything extra other than what you're buying, and it helps us. So check it out. Also, uh, make sure that if you want to expand your experience with us here on the show, you do so at expandingrealitypodcast.com. That is linked down in the show notes. That's going to be where all socials, merchandise, uh, Rockfin, we're doing lives. There's the Too Hot for YouTube that's free to watch on the website, by the way, and it's free to go there. So just go check it out. Uh, We're doing a lot of revamps over there. So um, come by and show some love. It's uh, really cool stuff. So anyway. Go out into this beautiful place, whatever the hell it is, guys, and y'all pick up a piece of litter. Uh, make sure that you're nice to everybody that you come across. It does not mean anything to go out of your way to smile at someone or to open a door or anything like that. It's a small thing, like buying somebody a coffee or a meal around you in line wherever the hell you're at or somebody's groceries in front of you, something like that. Small things, massive ripple effects. Uh, also, uh, get out of the left-hand lane, of course, because it's a huge pain in the ass and you don't want to do that. And then uh, above all and anything else, guys, go out into this beautiful, beautiful place, whatever the hell it is, and y'all just be good to one another. Thank you so damn much for listening. I just, I'm going to say it again. Thank you so damn much for listening. We will see y'all next time. <laughs>